Today we're going to talk about Nehemiah 11. And there's a couple of different themes that I've noticed as I was planning that run through 11 and 12. And we're actually going to talk about both, 11 and 12. And the reason that we're going to do that is because in 11 and 12 we find more lists of names. And so there's lists of names in chapter 11 and in 12. And there's significant lists, and lists of names are, you know, good, I guess. For some people who are more artistic, you're like, I could care less about lists. Give me, like, feelings. But for those of you who are, like, engineers, you love lists. Like, lists are, like, what you live for, you know? And for others of you, you're indifferent to lists. You're like, lists are okay or not, I don't really know. But lists are, are a positive thing. They help us digest um, a mad amount of information in an easy kind of way. That's what lists do. When the Titanic set out from, um, from England in, in 1912, there were three lists that made up the passenger registry. And the lists were um, separated according to classes. So in the first list, you would have like um, lawyers and, or celebrities or even a few athletes on that list and um, doctors and the creme de la creme of society and on the second list, you had more like a middle class kind of list for the passenger registry for the Titanic. You had like teachers or, um, you know, authors or professors, stuff like that. And then the third list was like the third class of citizens. And they were, you know, you guys remember the, the movie, of course, Rose, I will find you, that kind of deal. Uh, the third, the th- <laughs> yeah, I just referenced... Titanic, the movie, and Leonardo DiCaprio. Wonderful. Um, <laughs> that was really funny, right? So on the third list would be like servants and maids and nannies and, and people immigrating to America on the third class list. And we'll, we'll touch on like what those lists um, mean later in the talk. So lists are important. Where you find your name on lists, you, when you graduate college, you want to find your name on that list. You've put a lot of work into it. You want to see your name on that list. You know, When you graduate high school, you want to, you want to see your name on that list. You're like, dang, I hope I'm on that list. Like, I really worked hard for four years, and you know, I really took a lot of naps during Spanish class, and I want to see my name on that list. Like, those naps were worth it. I want to graduate. <laughs> My jokes are bombing today. <laughs> okay. And, there, and also, there, there's a list in uh, Washington, D.C. that I'm familiar with. Uh, personally, um, it's, it's written, it's etched in stone and on a black wall that spans a, a couple of acres. And there are 58,000 names on that list. That list is the Vietnam Wall and what separates this list from the other lists in Washington, D.C. is that the names of the soldiers who gave their lives to sacrifice for our freedom are not listed alphabetically. 
There are 58,000 names on the Vietnam Wall uh, at the Vietnam Memorial, and they are listed chronologically. So they're not listed alphabetically. They're listed chronologically as to when they fell. And so my father was in Vietnam. He enlisted. He was an officer. He, uh, he was a lieutenant at... Um, and he ran sensors along the Ho Chi Minh Trail for the 101st Airborne Division. And he had dear friends in Vietnam. And one of his friends, his, his closest friend, Greg, was killed in, in Vietnam. So Greg's name is on that wall in Washington, D.C. And every year, my dad as an educator would take groups of students to Washington, D.C. in the spring. And he'd show them the list of, of names that were etched into that black wall and. Um, you know, my dad knew where Greg's name was listed, but it wasn't listed alphabetically. So if you had no personal connection with that name that was written on the wall, um, you would have no idea where to find these names. You just wouldn't. You wouldn't know where to look to find names unless you had personal connection with that person. So lists are significant. They mean something. And in Nehemiah, we see a couple of different lists. We're going to read Nehemiah 11, 1 through 6, if you want to turn there with me or swipe there with me. If you don't have a Bible, we have a few on either side of the stage. They're free if you'd like one. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. And in Nehemiah 11, starting verse 1, we read, this. Now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the remaining nine were to stay in their own towns. The people commended all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. These are the provincial leaders who settled in Jerusalem. Now some Israelites, priests, Levites, temple servants, and descendants of Solomon's servants lived in the towns of Judah, each on his own property in the various towns, while other people from both Judah and Benjamin lived in Jerusalem. Let's stop there. So what's happening now is that the wall has been constructed, and the city, if you remember, is derelict. It's, it's broken down. There's rubble from the walls everywhere. And Nehemiah, if you, if you remember, and I believe it's chapter 6, comes back in the middle of the night because he doesn't want to get beat up and uh, inspects the walls and finds rubble everywhere. The town is a mess. The city is a mess. And now the, the walls are rebuilt, but the city is still a mess. And in order for all of these things to happen, for what we're about to read, the city needs to be inhabited. So as you can imagine, people aren't really lining up to come back to, lo- to move into the city. They're not signing up and lining up in, in droves to move back into Jerusalem. Nothing is like happening there. It's a little bit like LeBron James. How is it like LeBron James, you might ask? Well, let me explain. When LeBron grows up, LeBron grows up out of where? Akron. Grows up out of adjunct poverty and then um, says, I'm going to play 
for Cleveland. I'm going to play for home team. Plays for home team for a bit. Things get rough. And then his, his jersey starts to be burned in public forum because he's decided, peace out, I'm going to Miami. So he leaves Cleveland and he moves to South Beach. And what happens in Miami, for those of you who are not basketball fans, LeBron gets rings. That means that he is very successful in Miami. He wins not one, but two championships and bring and and he's you know he's Mr. Miami and Cleveland is hopping mad <laughs> and we don't want to ever see LeBron James ever again and then out of the clear blue sky LeBron says I'm coming home I'm I want to play in Cleveland and he comes back home why does LeBron come home to play basketball in Cleveland. Does he come back to Cleveland because Cleveland is such a wonderful place to live and raise a family? No, he does not. Cleveland, um, you know, most folk who do not live in Cleveland look out from the outside into Cleveland and say Cleveland would be a terrible place to raise a family. LeBron, don't go back to Cleveland. No, he doesn't move back to Cleveland because it's a wonderful place to live yet. LeBron James moves back to Cleveland, and you guys remember the ad campaigns and the commercials. He moves back to Cleveland because he feels like he's got something, uh, he's got a part to play in the restoration of the city. By winning basketball games, you might ask. But it's similar to the story of Nehemiah, isn't it? It's very similar that we find ourselves in this season of life in the city of Cleveland. This, this is, it's very similar. Let me answer that question for you. It's parallel with the story of Nehemiah in Scripture. We're seeing it. We're, we're living in the story of Nehemiah in our day and age. We all know that our Savior is not LeBron James, correct? Our Savior is Jesus. We look to Jesus for the restoration of the city. And how is that fleshed out? Could he use a basketball team to lift the spirits of a region of people? Sure, he could. How else could he do it? Through your heart and through your hands. That's how he wants to do it. That's how he wants to usher in change. And you see these little, you'll begin to see, like, uh, um, the NBA Finals was sort of like a big bam of like life, but you'll begin to see little pockets of life start to sprout up around the, the area of greater Cleveland as God's kingdom starts to be ushered into the place. I believe that we're living in, in that time, in that accelerated time. We'll start to see more and more of that stuff happen. We may even see a parade in November. Let's hope so if the Indians can win a little bit more in these days. <laughs> Okay, so you see that the people aren't really lining up to move back into the city. So these people are to be commended. And specifically, everything points to Jesus. Well, how does everything point to Jesus in these verses? You'll notice there that Nehemiah writes... Specifically, on the towns of Judah... There in verse 3. And the other people from both Judah and Benjamin lived in Jerusalem. 
This is important. This list of names, Judah in verses 3 through 6, and Benjamin in verses 7 through 9, are very important. Why are these verses significant? Because in order for God's promises to be kept, the city would need to be inhabited. I mean, that's pretty simple. People need to live there. For, in order for these promises to be fulfilled, there need to be people to carry these things out. Specifically in the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. People are seeing promises of God starting to take shape in their city. In the city of Jerusalem. Specifically in the tribes of Judah and Benjamin because of who Jesus is. The ultimate promise will be fulfilled one day because these people said, sign me up to live in the derelict town of Jerusalem. Do you see what I'm saying? The lion of the tribe of Judah, the person of Jesus Christ, the, pro- the, the presence of the promise comes out of these pages of Scripture in Nehemiah 11, 3 through 6. The lion of the tribe of Judah. If these people in Nehemiah 11, in verses 3 through 6, don't say, sign me up, or are drafted by casting lots to move into the city of Jerusalem, does that baby get born in a stable, in a manger? Because see, you know, I don't know. You know, because see, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin are the tribes in Jewish history that make up the southern kingdom of Israel. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus comes from and out of this story of Jewish history. It all points to Jesus. Later on, In verses 10 through 14, we see there a list of names for the priests. And then, starting in verse 15, a list of names of the Levites. And then in 19, the gatekeepers. And 20, the rest of the Israelites, priests and Levites, and all the towns of Judah. 21, the temple servants. 22, chief officer. Lots going on here. But what we need to focus on is that all of these names have responsibilities that are attached to them. And all of these responsibilities here mainly focus on the temple. The temple is the focal point, specifically in verse 19 with the gatekeepers, to the upkeep of the temple gates and the temple courts. It all revolves around worship. Okay? And um, the temple is important here. We all know um, that there are different courts in the Jewish temple. There is an outer court. As you come into the temple, there's an outer court. You move further in, there's an inner court. 
and so forth and so on, to the holy place, the inner court, the, the most holy place, and then even further, the holy of holies. And why was this so important? Why was the temple the focal point? Because before the cross of Jesus, this is where the presence of God dwelled. So the, the temple needed to be kept the the system of sacrifices of animal sacrifices need to needed to be reinstituted if you put yourself in the mind of a jewish citizen maybe a a household member this, this other side of the cross you're thinking every year Every year at the Day of Atonement, I go with my family, and if I want my family's sins to be absolved, I need to bring an animal, and I need to see blood. I need to see that animal sacrifice in order for my family to be okay. People wanted to be, you know, everybody wants to be well-liked. You want to be well-respected in your community. If you were a good Jew in this time, you would have been thrilled that the temple was back in business, as it were, continuing on with the system of animal sacrifice, that side of the cross. This was important. There was only one man who was allowed in the most holy, holy of holies place, and that was the priest on one day of the year, on the Day of Atonement. And even then, they tied a rope around his ankle so that he wouldn't be killed by the very presence of God, beholding the presence of God. This is a big deal. The temple is a big deal. We'll see why here in a minute. God is the focal point. He dwells by his spirit in the temple. So the fact that Jerusalem's being re-inhabited by people is a big deal. It's a big deal. That the walls are complete, and so now people can live and thrive in the city. In 25 through 36, we see um, a list of names for the villages of Judah and Benjamin. This is an important phase in Jewish history. And in the arc of redemptive history, this is an important moment. Without all of this being set up and reestablished, there is no church. This is a very important moment in Jewish history. It's actually like a type. Nehemiah, would, many would say, is like a type of Jesus in the way that he leads people. It's all pointing to Jesus, very important in the phase of Jewish history. The temple is the main focus. And what this list of names is, in its totality, is more than simply a list of names etched on a piece of paper. It's more than a list of names. What this list of names represents is the joyful anticipation of the people. They're excited that sacrifices are going to start again. They're excited that they have a place to live. Finally, they're not exiled for 70 plus years. They get to come home. They get to come home and live and, and be restored in the city. They've experienced so much pain and so much hurt and, and they've put blood, sweat, and tears into, into this wall. But now, now 
they can celebrate and they can thrive. Now they can, they can, they can thrive in the city of Jerusalem. And that, those are powerful words. You know, this is, this is significant. These, this, it's not just a list of names. It's the joyful anticipation of people anticipating the promise of God, the faithfulness of God being experienced. Those are powerful words in the English language. But then God... I used to be a drug addict, but then Jesus. They're transformative words. I, I used to be, my, my spouse and I were on the brink of divorce, but then Jesus broke through. My, my, um, my, my colleague was, was, uh, hate, was hating on me at work, but then Jesus broke through that relationship. But then God, our the, mo- the three most powerful words in the English language. They're transformative. When God intervenes in a situation, when Jesus intervenes in a situation, everything changes when Jesus steps on the scene. And what this is, is more than a list of names. It's the joyful anticipation of the promise fulfilled in Jesus. The city's springing back to life again. His promises are starting to be fulfilled. The covenant faithfulness of God is in action. It's working. Which leads me to believe that on the other side of the cross, how much more? Instead of the joyful anticipation of the promises of God being fulfilled... How much more joy, even more so, should, our be, should ours be the practical realization of the promise fulfilled in Jesus? Because everything points to Jesus. All of the animal sacrifices, all of the, the rituals and the ceremonial washings at the temple, they all point to Jesus. But now, on this side of the cross, our anticipation should be even greater than theirs. They had the partial, we have the full They had the the lambs and goats, and we have Jesus' blood shed at the cross. We've seen their joyful anticipation of God's promises. This should lead to our joyful realization that God's promises have been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. And that he he wants to usher in a new time through our hearts and our hands. People of the people of God. What's happening here is that they're, it, uh, once again, they're enjoying access to God. But they're not enjoying direct access. It's still coming through a priest. It's still coming through indirect means. So in the temple, in the holy place, there was a curtain. And this curtain was thick. It wasn't like a shower curtain. Josephus was a first century Jewish scholar, and he said that the temple, the the curtain in Herod's temple was so thick that you could place a team of horses on one side of the curtain and another team of horses on the other side of the curtain and say, giddy up, and they start to 
to move, and that temple curtain would still not be torn. This is an obstacle between the people and God's presence. Remember, the very presence of God dwells in behind the veil. And if the presence of God dwells in the temple behind the veil, that means that there are obstacles between the people and us. So we hear the Father's heart as Jesus is dying on the cross, ripping and shredding all obstacles from his presence and his people. That's what we're seeing. But the Israelites live on the other side of the cross. There's not direct access to Jesus quite yet. But it's coming How much more should we rejoice? The mediator of the new covenant, he's our great high priest. It's with his blood. He's the one true sacrifice. We read in Hebrews 10, verse 4, because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away the the sins of the world. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. A body you prepared for me. Verse 11, day after day, every priest stands and performs performs, uh, his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made. His footstool, Jesus, sat down. It's finished. No more sacrifices on this side of the cross. He's a new and living way. We read again in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, by what means? By the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain. Through that curtain. That is his body. Isn't that so rich? Isn't it so good that that curtain, that physical curtain that was ripped from top to bottom, is the Father saying, this is what's going on with Jesus at the cross. Now, we don't have to be apart any longer. We can be together with nothing in the way. No obstacle stands in the way. He's a new and living way. So what response does that cause in us? It causes us to draw near. Don't you want to be near a father who says that? In the cross, ah, it's so wooing. It's so drawing. It's so compelling of the father to say that. The picture is this. When my father taught middle school, one of his students grew up. Well, they all grew up. One of his students grew up and worked for the, and uh, took a job with the Secret Service in the Oval Office, in the White House. And on this gentleman's way to work, Monday through Friday, in the White House, he told my dad that he would have to pass a series of 17 different security checks just to get anywhere near the Oval Office, right? I want to contrast that daily routine of my father's student who worked in the Secret Service with those dear photos, those black and white photos, in case you, rem- 
you forget the, the, the black and white photos of JFK in the Oval Office. You remember these sweet photos. JFK's sitting, he's doing work at his desk, and there's the big desk, and then what do we see as we look down underneath the desk? But we see John F. Kennedy Jr. as a toddler, and he's playing about his father's feet. And, and that's just what Jesus is. You know, John F. Kennedy Jr. did not need to pass through 17 security checks just to say, good morning, Dad, I love you. And this is the way it is with Jesus. We, you see, because John F. Kennedy Jr. enjoyed a relational proximity that was different than my father's student who grew up to be a Secret Service agent. This is exactly like who Jesus is. Jesus' body is the, the, the curtain that's been torn for us to enter in. He says, I'm the door. Jesus calls himself the door. He says of himself, I'm the way, not just the truth, not just life, but I'm the way to get in, to be in, to be in relationship with the Father. You have to come through me. There's no other way but Jesus. He's our access. So they shared a moment of joy in Jerusalem, but we look forward to eternity in Jesus' presence. There's this thing of comparison, comparison and con- contrasting um, the partialness of what it meant to, to dedicate the wall that uh, the Israelites had just built to the person of Jesus. They celebrated a moment of joy in Jerusalem and eternity of joy with Jesus and so forth. They renewed their commitment and they shared a moment of joy. Now, as the Titanic sank, there was only one list of known survivors um, that was produced and that was the only list that was left, and that was the only list that really mattered of whether you saw your name on it or not. The only list that mattered from that passenger registry for you would, would have been the list of known survivors. You would want to see your name on that list. So whatever list that you've been on, in your past, whether it's the list of high school accolades or athletics or, or the list of Grammy winners or the list of the college role of honor, the, the only list that really matters in life is, is Jesus' list. You want to see your name written on that list. Don't you want to hear your name called out by this curtain that was torn to give us access to the Father? I want to hear my name on that list. The other lists pale in comparison. There are also people ready to rejoice. We'll close with this final point. Let me get back. In Nehemiah 12, verses 27 through 43, we read of great joy. And we're going to skip through 
a few. The dedication of the wall of Jerusalem in verse 27. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals and harps and lyres. The singers were also brought together from the region around Jerusalem, from the villages of lots of names I can't read. When the priests and Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people, uh, the gates, and the wall. 31, I had the leaders of Judah go up on top of the wall. This is important. I also signed two large choirs to give thanks. One was to proceed on the top of the wall to the right, toward the dung gate. The other, skipping down to 38, the second choir proceeded in the opposite direction. I followed them. Ezra's on one side, Nehemiah's on the other. I followed them on the top of the wall together with half the people past the tower of the ovens to the broad wall. As far as the gate of the guard, they stopped. 40, the two choirs that gave thanks then took their places in the house of God. So did I, together with half the officials, as well as the priests. Verse 43, and on that day, they offered great sacrifices. That's a lot. That means there, was tons, there were tons of animals being slaughtered. Rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. That's an important one. We'll come to in a second. So this picture of a choir. We're given this picture of a choir in verses 31 through 39. There are two choirs. The Hebrew word that's used here for choir is different than how we would think of choir. Now when you think of choir, you think of what? Old church risers and a group of people standing on them. You know, Christmas time awesome sweaters and maybe some sweater vests and people singing out of key or people singing wonderfully together. It's just this beautiful mass of wonderfulness. I love choirs. When I would lead worship in in Augusta, choir week was like awesome. It was one of my favorite weeks. I loved like hearing the people sing together and the harmonies and melodies coming together. It's wonderful. But that's not what's happening here. The Hebrew word for choir is actually, um, it's like, not more than similar to, but it's like synonymous with thanksgivings. So these groups of people are embodying what they're doing. And if you picture these great walls... One group is over here with Ezra, and the other group is over here with Nehemiah, and they're joyfully proceeding on top of the walls around the city. There's this picture of worship encircling the city of God, the people of God, and they're looking at this procession happen. Many of them are saying, we used our hands. Our hands were a part of of building these walls, and and now the, the thanksgivings are on the top of the walls, and they're encircling the city, and they're meeting in one place. Where are they meeting? They're meeting at the temple, they conclude the procession at the temple, and there, it would be like, um, on this great day of dedication, it would be like, you know, how you 
how you have that nostalgic, when you smell something, when you smell something and, just, and it takes you back to that, that, that fragrance takes you back immediately to where you were and, and, and or hearing that song from when you were a kid, it takes you back to that immediately you, you, can, you can remember where you were. As you heard that song, that's what it would have, would have been like for the Israelites seeing these two choirs process around on top of the wall that they had just built. It's amazing. They're, and what they're really looking at, though, is not a completed wall. You realize that. What they're looking at is the faithfulness of God because the promises are starting to line up. This is all happening within the world of God's promises lining up. And you play a role in that story. In the, in the grand arc of the redemptive story, you're on the wall as well. You're part of the choir. Do you see your place in the redemptive history of the world as, as believers in Jesus? You're on the wall as well. You're part of the choir as well. And that's good news. They're remembering. They're remembering. Sacrifices are being made again. And it says that God had made them rejoice. Joy is repeated five times in one verse, in verse 43. This is the high point uh, in the history of God's people. It would be, it says that their joy, the joy of the city was heard from miles away, from far away. And the picture here is like the Brazilian soccer team in Rio and the Olympics, and they just score a game-winning goal, and and the Olympic Stadium in Rio lights up and, and the crowd goes crazy. And for miles away, you can hear the city of Rio celebrating in jubilation. This is the picture that we're getting here. So what do we learn about rejoicing? How do we foster joy? Because that's what they're driving at. It's God-centered we learn that joy is God-centered. It comes from being in His presence. Together, the Israelites were together giving thanks. He's the source. God at the center. It's not about meeting at a place on this side of the cross. It's not about meeting at the temple anymore. This isn't the temple. You are the temple. The promise is in, in the presence of Jesus living inside of you. You carry the fullness of all of the, <laughs> wrap your mind around that. All of the fullness of God that dwelled in the most holy of holy places that you couldn't walk in, you or I couldn't walk in on just any given day into the presence of Almighty God, you'd be struck dead. All of the fullness of the presence of God that dwelled in the Holy of Holies dwells inside of your ribcage in the person of Jesus Christ. Think about that. How good is that? They're remembering God's faithfulness. And on this side of the cross, it should stir up and foster and cultivate and nurture joy in our hearts. It's God-centered 
He's the source of their joy. Number two, joy comes in remembering God's faithfulness. Joy comes in remembering God's faithfulness. The Lord protected them. The wall was broken. But then God, remember, he helps foster joy. Ephesians 1, he, 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 doesn't, he doesn't withhold anything. He gives us his son. And how easy it is for us to forget. We need to remember God's faithfulness in our lives, to set up signposts in our journey and say, you know, I don't know about anything else, but that time in my life, I remember. God saved me there. I remember that. And you set up a monument. And you say, This far, God has been faithful to me. And by saying this far, by saying, by setting up the monument, by setting up a a remember, a remembering, remembering, remembering of what God has done in your past, it enables you to say, God, you will be with me in the future. Because I know, Jesus, that you met me back then. You'll meet me again. That's what my name means. Eben, rock of strength. This far, God has been faithful. I know in my heart that God was with me back then. And because God was with me back then, he's going to be with me now. And more so, he's with me now. His presence dwells in me. He's going to be with me in the future. And that's what I count on. That's what I depend on. That's what I need. That's who I trust. I trust in the person of Jesus, the presence of Jesus, his faithfulness to me. We need to remember God's faithfulness. How do we do this? We set up monuments, and like Jerry Bridges says, we preach the gospel to ourselves each morning when we wake up. To preach preach the gospel to yourself then means that you continually face up to your own sinfulness and then flee to Jesus through faith in his shed blood and righteous life. Each morning when you wake up, preach the gospel to your heart. Remind yourself of who you are. Each morning when you wake up, you should be saying over yourself, I'm a child of God. God is my father. Heaven is my home. Every day it's one day nearer. My savior is my brother. And every follower of Jesus is my brother too. Every morning when you wake up, it's building the consistency of left foot Right foot, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to give thanks because entitlement doesn't belong in my heart. Jesus owes me nothing. No one owes me anything. It's all a gift of grace from the Lord Jesus Christ in my life. I'm going to wake up and left foot, I'm going to be kind to my spouse. I'm going to kiss Sarah on the cheek and say good morning. Right foot, I'm going to be thankful for Luca and pray over him as he goes to school. Left foot, I'm going to sit down to dinner with my family. And right foot, I'm going to wake up and do it all again tomorrow. That's how we remember God's faithfulness, a consistent life. And thirdly, thankfulness. We saw the, the, the choirs of, of God marching on the city walls. Their, their name literally means thanksgiving, thank, thankfulness. Being thankful fosters joy. How often do we become entitled to, to things because we're Americans and we deserve this or that? We don't deserve anything. You want... We, we deserve something. We don't really have time to go into it this morning. The Holy Spirit's moving right now. We could really spend some time here, but 
I value your time. I'm really hungry, too. Ordering the, so, so I think we'll end there. Entitlement. You've, you've heard me speak on entitlement before. You know what you deserve. You know what I deserve. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve to take my next breath. It's not owed to me. Nothing's owed to us. Everything is a gift. And that's how we foster joy, because nothing fosters joy like banishing entitlement from our hearts. The more we banish entitlement and say something is owed to me, the more we downplay that victim flag or that martyr flag that we want to raise every morning, it's their fault, not my fault. Every time we lower the victim flag, we lower the advocate flag. We invite joy and the promises of God into our lives to flow freely. But the second we raise the victim flag up, now I'm not talking about a general like comfort. There are times when we need to come alongside of others because they're literally, they're suffering inside. And they have the right to raise the victim flag. I'm just talking about those of us who feel entitled to everything that's coming our way. We need to lower the victim flag. And as we lower the victim flag, we'll begin to see the blessings of God flow in us and through us. Because the blessings of God will never flow through an entitled heart. Clarify. Flow freely through an entitled heart. There's always grace. Thank the Lord I'm not perfect. Right? So the blessings of God will flow, but if you want that living water, the, the, the more you lower the entitlement, the, the victim, the martyr, the more you lower that flag and you raise the flag of joy in your life and consistency of following Jesus, you can expect the blessings of God to gush out of your life like never before. And I'm not saying I'm arrived. I'm just saying I'm with you in wanting that. I'm together with you. I want to see that. I want to see the blessings of God take shape in my time. I want to see it in your time. Why not us? Why not now? Our stories are helping to to rewrite the city anyway. Why don't they go towards rewriting the redemptive history, the redemptive story of the city of Cleveland? And that comes by lowering the entitlement flag and raising the joy flag and serving someone other than ourselves, saying yes to Jesus. I'm on this side of the cross, so joy is mine. Favor is mine in Jesus' name. I have all the favor that you could ever want to give to me, Father. So I walk in that as I release life to the city. Why don't you join me in standing?